0: Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is on page 399 in the Black Bibles. We're now in chapter 3 of Nehemiah. And just to kind of remember again, uh, what we're seeing in Nehemiah is in the history of Israel. Israel had been judged and exiled, and God had promised he would bring them back to the land, and he would start over again with his redeeming, saving work that he was doing through Israel. Now, we're a part of that as well, because Jesus is, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's saving, redeeming work through Israel. So we are a part of Jesus. We're a part of the work that God was doing through Israel. There are differences between the church and Israel, but there is a continuity in Romans 11. He says it's one tree we're grafted in by faith. We're part of God's saving work in the world. And so just like we want to repair the ruins of a broken world, God was working through Israel to repair the ruins of a broken world. And specifically... Uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, was the place where God broadcast who he was to the world, where his word was taught, where sacrifices were made to show that he was holy and we could approach through sacrifices. And we're also uh, then seeing worship where people are invited in, the nations are invited in to worship God. All this was happening in Jerusalem uh, at the temple in Mount Zion. So Nehemiah is a part of the crew that's going back to rebuild this broken down city. Um, And so we're learning from them as we watch them say we want to be God a part of what you're doing in the world Because we want to do that as well, right? We want to be a part of what God's doing in the world We have a really interesting text this morning This is one of those texts that people skip over in their daily Bible reading Um, So when you look at Nehemiah chapter 3, this is one of those texts where you'd be like, okay You know, you just flip over. It's like reading a phone book, okay? Um, So what we're going to try to do is show you but it really is meaningful as well. I'm going to try to make some general observations and just kind of help you to see, oh, I could could make sense of this on my own if I were to read it uh, in my own Bible reading. So we're calling it this week Teamwork because that's a theme that pops out. When we plow through the text and all the repetition, we see this theme pop up of God likes to bring together diverse people to do his work in the world, brings him glory. He doesn't need us to do his work in the world, but it pleases him to use us to do his work in the world. That's how God operates. He loves to bring together a team from different backgrounds. So we'll read chapter three, verses one through five to start, and then we'll kind of pick at little separate sections of it as we move through it tonight. So to start off with the first five verses, then Eliasheb, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we ask for your help. We pray that you would teach us through your word. Um, Lord, we we admit uh, a distance we feel when we read some of these difficult texts and things that don't immediately connect. We pray that you would give us the strength to see what you're doing here, uh, to receive your word as a gift that you've given to us. We ask for your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit to meet us and empower us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a few pictures I wanted to share with you just to give you a feeling for what I think the text is doing here. Um, we started Grace Bible Church almost nine years ago. Um, so we would not I wouldn't want to put Grace Bible Church on level with rebuilding the city of God, but I think, as I've said before, we're all called to do the work that God's called us to do to repair what's broken in the world. And Grace Bible Church is certainly a part of that. We're part of being God's work in the world. And so I just wanted to share and give you some of the names of the people that were part of that first worship service. We had a worship service on August 20th, 2006. So coming close, quickly, almost nine years. Um, Here's a guy. This is in my backyard. We are having a leaders get together, a barbecue, guy with the dark hair. His name is Mike O'Neill. It's a lot easier to pronounce than some of these Hebrew names, right? Mike O'Neill. You don't have to practice it. You can just say it. It rolls off the tongue. He was one of our first elders, taught Sunday school at a small group, taught a marriage class. Uh, He and his wife, Trish, were good friends of ours from way back and came with us uh, in the original to get us us started here as a church. Um, There's Kathy Rocco. She still runs our women's ministry on the far left. She had much longer hair then. Her hair is shorter now. She looks different. I think she got rid of her glasses, but uh, we've got... Christy Rooney, uh, Renee Kroos, and the Walker kids in the foreground. These are real people that were part of our church when we started eight and a half years ago. Um, There's me in the middle uh, with the blue shirt, funny smirk on my face. My friend, the guy to the right in the other blue shirt, that's Glenn Harwood, dear friend of mine. He started one of the first small groups we had here, uh, helped us with a lot of of stuff when we were getting the church started. Uh, That's the Burges on the left. The shepherds in the middle, a lot of you may still know the shepherds, they're actually still here. So one of the few families that were there then that are still here now, and the Roonies on the right, uh, that's Melissa Oliver and her baby. Her baby had just been born. Her husband had missed the birth by like eight hours. It was one of those heartbreaking deployment stories where he almost made it and he just barely missed it, but then he got to be there for for a little while, a couple weeks, uh, right after the baby was born. There's Tom Harper. Tom passed away a couple years ago, a dear friend of ours that helped us to start our recovery ministry here at Grace Bible Church. Great guy, Tom and Don have done a lot of work with us over the years. Uh, That is Stephanie Holman, and that's somebody else's baby. She's helping work in the nursery that day. So her and Jeremy pitched in and helped us out a lot. That's uh, Dennis Walker on the left, Steve Voss on the right, Uh, Dennis and Cherie were part of the church when we started, then they moved away. Then God, and his grace, brought them back to Fort Hood again, and they were with us again, and then they have moved away again. Uh, Steve Voss, his wife, uh, and he helped lead small groups, and his wife, Darla, was our founding secretary, so in a sense was kind of like my executive pastor for a while. You know, I mean, She kind of did everything, and uh, they were a great, great couple. Um, that's Marcy Katzenberger on the left. She was one of our first nursery directors, and Kimberly Harwood on the right who helped her run the nursery. Uh, we used to call Marcy Katzenberger and her husband, been uh, the Katzenbergermeisters. That's kind of a Christmas movie joke, if you get that. Um, that's Greg Shanup on the right. He was one of our early elders as well and since has started another church in the area. So multiplying work, but a great guy that helped teach Sunday school and did a lot of ministry with us. Um, Rod Chisholm, one of our first Sunday school teachers there, leading this class. That was the first day we had services. Um, there's Fred Shelton welcoming people. His mother is here with us tonight, helped us get going. Uh, still still with us, doing a lot of ministry with us. There's Carrie and Adam Parker. Adam was like our first building committee guy, and Carrie helped run our Sunday school program here at the church. They're actually still with us too. That's Tom and uh, Sue Schillingberg, early elders, kind of our early board when we first launched before anybody was even with us. Raul Vialone, keeping the elementary boys in line. Good, good strong man there to keep things under control. Miss the Vialone family there in Dallas now, I think. Dan Lau, one of the early sound men. He was also a backup worship leader for us, a good guy that helped us with a lot of different stuff. That's our first worship service. It looks really big, doesn't it? It looks like a lot of people showed up the first day. When I was looking at different angles, the pictures, I noticed like 50 of those people were my relatives, so (laughs) it wasn't as big the second week, but still, it was, you know, it's cool. That so these are, these are real people. I just wanted to get you a, give you a feeling that, of real history here, right? Like what you see, the ministries that exist now were built on top of real people stepping out in faith and saying, I'm going to be a part of what God is doing here. And you're, you're a part of that too, to differing degrees. Some of you just really just showing up. Some of you really deeply involved. But what God is doing is he's working through real people in the world. Um, we had this interesting phrase where it said that to Koites, uh, they built, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And that's really the question for us, I think, as we look at this ta- uh, text, is is will we uh, pull out like those, those guys, the nobles that didn't stoop to serve, or will we be a part of what God is doing here at this church, in the community, in the world? That, that's the question before us. Uh, and what I wanted to do, as I said, is kind of help us see how do we make sense of a complicated text, um, or maybe not even complicated, maybe a we might just say a boring text, right? I said before, it kind of reads like a phone book. And so I'd like us to think through what are the things that pop up as we take scripture to scripture and say, okay, I believe this is true. I believe God's given me his word because he wants to teach me. So when I personally come to parts of scripture that I don't understand or I'm really just bored by or I don't want to read, how do I handle that? What, what do I do with it? So I would say just let's just start with simple observation. What, what do we see? What pops out in this text as we read it? So we take the time to read it. What pops out? And the first thing I think that pops out is so many names, right? There's a ton of names here. If you read, it's all 32 verses. It's just listing name after name after name. And just a little side secret, this isn't really part of the sermon, so this is a little aside, okay? Um, The secret to reading Hebrew names is confidence, okay? (laughs) Just barrel through it. I don't know if you noticed that. I was just acting like I knew what I was doing, okay? Okay? I have studied Hebrew, but I'm also sure I mispronounced half of those names, okay? So just just roll with it. Um, they're not familiar to us, and linguists would disagree on the pronunciation anyway. So just be confident and just read them like you know how to read them. Um, that's one of the things that keeps us from reading them. So just push on through. Um, but also, th- there's, just, there's so many names, so that tells us that God cares about the names, right? I would say that's a very simple observation. If this is Scripture, if this is God's Word, and He gives us lists of real names, then our God must be the kind of God that cares about real people and real names. It's a very simple observation, but I just want you to be able to kind of see, oh, there's, there's something there. God cares about real names, and it feels to us maybe like reading a phone book. It doesn't seem like exciting narrative, but you know what? Even a phone book points us to real people. Here, I have a picture of a phone book here. I know a lot of you have never seen one of these. I'm looking, there's some younger people here in the audience. I know you've never seen a phone book before, but we used to have these books They were just full of people's names and their phone numbers. And when we said phone number, that meant a machine that was plugged into the wall. Um, You might have a really fancy one in your kitchen that had like a 30-foot cord, but generally you could only talk in one room with these machines we called phones. And you'd have a book called a phone book full of names. And that that book pointed to real people. Those are real people you wanted to communicate with, you wanted to talk to. And when we read this list of names in Scripture, we're seeing that God cares about real people, and he's recorded their names. Because the Bible is really a historical book. We often think, as Enlightenment people, that there's this uh, divide between history over here, the facts we learn in school, and then kind of these loose, weird values of religion, right? But the Bible says, no, those two things go together. The Bible is a historical book. It's a fact book. It's a reality book. One of my favorite authors is a thinker named Leslie Newbigin who passed away a few years ago. And he had been a missionary in India for about 40 years. And he'd been sent out from Scotland, the England area, uh, I guess you'd say the UK. Um, So he'd gone to India for 40 years. And then when he returned in his retirement to teach at a Bible college, he discovered a post-Christian West, right? Have y'all ever heard that phrase before, the post-Christendom West, kind of the idea that our culture isn't predominantly Christian anymore. We don't have predominantly Christian assumptions anymore. We've become Enlightenment people, uh, kind of hyper-rationalists. And, and so uh, what he would say is that when he came back to the West, to England and to some, somewhat America as well, he wanted us to understand in the West that we needed to see church as a missionary endeavor and not just assume that people agreed with everything that we thought. We should see ourselves as missionaries, just like he did when he was in India. So anyway, he's got a lot of great insights of of culture and understanding the difference between Christianity and culture. And he had a lot of great friends that were Hindu in India, and he quotes a dear Hindu friend of his that had studied both Hinduism and the Bible extensively, and this is what a Hindu friend said. "Hindu friend said, I don't understand why you Christians bring the Bible to us as a book of religion. I don't see it as a book of religion. We have plenty of books of religion, and we don't need any more. I see your Bible as a quite unique interpretation of cosmic history, from the beginning of creation to the end of the whole human story within that cosmic story, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. A responsible actor in history. And there is no other book in the world which, in any sense whatever, can compare with that. In that sense, your Bible is completely unique. And Newbegin says, I think he's right. I think my Hindu friend is exactly right. We too often pawn the Bible off as a book of religion when it's actually a book of history. It's testifying to true things and real people. It's, a, it's about a God who invaded space and time, not a God who floats out above reality, but who's become a part of it. And in becoming a part of it, he pulls us into what he's doing in the world. Again, God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes in the world. God chooses to use us to accomplish his purposes in the world. It pleases him to use us to accomplish his purposes in the world. So there are so many names here in this text because these were people like you and me that God wanted to use as responsible human actors in history to make a difference. Now, Christians disagree over to what degree we can usher in the kingdom here and now, and to what degree we have to wait on Jesus to finally fix everything, right? We disagree over degrees, but we all agree that Jesus is going to fix it all, and he wants us to get it better along the way. I mean, all Christians agree with that. Like, our job is to make things better. We can argue over how much better can we get it, and how much do we need to wait on Jesus to fix it all, but We know Jesus is going to fix it all, and he wants us to make it better while we're waiting for him to come back. That's what we're here for. God wants us, with our unique names that we think are easy to pronounce, he, he wants us to be a part of what he's doing in the world and to make things better, to be used by him. And so when you see so many names popping out in the text, I want you to remember the Bible's a historical book. God cares about real people. He cares about me and you as well. He wants us to be a part of what he's doing here in the world. The other thing I would challenge you with is sometimes when we read these lists and we wrestle with the historicity of scripture, um, we might be kind of led astray by skeptics that would say, well, there's this conflict with this archaeological dig or this this list of names doesn't perfectly line up with this other list of names because there's actually so much history in the Bible that we get different angles of the same historical events. So sometimes those seem to conflict. And I would challenge you to actually study and follow up with those. Because it's the laziest thing in the world to just take some college professor's word for it and go, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible, so forget it. Please don't be lazy. If, if you care, if you're concerned that there are contradictions in the Bible, actually study them. Um, I would challenge you to do that. As you study them, we can make sense of a lot of these. I shared a lot of people's names that helped us to start the church. There was one guy, I showed his wife Stephanie, his name was Jeremy, but we called him Worm. Um, And so you know, I could give one list where I talk about people that helped us start the church and I could talk about Worm. I could give another list where I talk about Jeremy and you would say, ah, he's contradicting himself, right? Those are two different lists. Well, no, it's the same guy. He just had two different names. That kind of thing happens a lot in scripture as well. And so that's just a very tiny example, but there's all kinds of, of reasonable explanations for seeming contradictions in scripture. And so when we find historical data and lists, and issues of archaeology, I would say study it. Give it the benefit of the doubt. Struggle to understand what seems to contradict, but, but know that it's trustworthy. Know that God is not claiming anything less than this book is true, and it's historical. And it doesn't float outside of space and time in some kind of disembodied way the way many other religions do. It's, it's, it claims to be reality. So there's so many names because God cares about real people, real people like you and me, real people like the crazy names I had back then, and real people like you and me today. Um, so what keeps us from getting involved? And as, as we think about just that last verse we read about the nobles of the Tekoites in verse five that wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord, I would say that's one of the big things that keeps us from seeing God as as wanting to use us in the world is we think maybe we're too good to stoop to do God's work. I would say it's just pride, right? One of the reasons we don't want to do God's work is we think maybe we're too good for it. Um, and, and then I think the other side of that is sometimes we think we're too bad for it. I've talked about this when we were in Galatians. Th- those are both forms of pride. If you think you're too good or too busy or too important to do God's work, that's pride. You think you're better than other people. And the cross, the cross just wrecks that for us. The cross says we're all sinners, And we needed the sacrifice of a holy God to make us acceptable to him. We can't bring our resume. We can't bring our accomplishments at work, our intelligence. We can't bring what we've done in our family into God's presence. We stand before God as sinners. We stand before a holy, perfect, righteous God as people who fall short. So the cross should humble all of us. None of us should be too good to do God's work. None of us should be too good to pitch in and teamwork to help make our neighborhoods and our communities a better place. And on the other side of that, none of us are too bad. Some of us struggle thinking, I'm too bad. There's too much darkness in my past. There's too much shame in my past. There's too much uh, painful, horrible things that have gone on. And I would say that that's pride as well. God is big enough to handle our past. Again, the, the cross equalizes us. In the cross, we see we're all sinners that have failed. And we see that we're all forgiven, sons and daughters of God that are loved and delighted in. Not just loved and delighted in, but he pulls us into his work. Again, teamwork. He says, I, I want you with, with your name and with your name and with your name to be involved as a responsible human actor in this world repairing the ruins of what's gone wrong here. And that's, that's how we wait for Jesus to come back and finish the work, right? Matthew 24 and 25 is real clear. Jesus says, I'm going away. I'll be coming back later. The way you wait for me is work hard, make things better the best he can while I'm gone. That's our job. So teamwork starts with so many names. He he cares about names. He cares about people like you and me. The next thing that we see is so many skills. Just another thing that pops out. There's a lot of different skills, a lot of different jobs that he talks about here. Um, So again, a list of 32 verses, and we have tons of different um, vocations, skills, jobs, the things that people do, craftsmen here. Um, Look at verse 6. We'll pick up there. In verse six it says, Joyada the son of Pasea and Meshulam the son of Besseda repaired the gate of Yashanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. Next to them repaired Malatiah the Gibeonite, and Jaden the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mispah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Now we're talking about some governors here, some leaders. Verse 8 Next to them, Uziel the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. Do have any goldsmiths or perfumers here tonight? Anyone? Okay, it's an unusual skill. You don't see a lot of those anymore, I guess. Um, next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. So we have another leader here, a, a, a ruler. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired, opposite his house. Next to him, Hatush, the son of... Hashabnea repaired. I think we'll stop there and skip down to verse 31. We'll pick up again some other jobs that are described. I'm I'm skipping over some as well, but pick up in 31, kind of right at the end of the chapter here. After him, Alchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants, and of the merchants opposite the muster gates. We've got temple servants, we've got goldsmiths, we've got merchants, and to the upper gate of the corner, and then verse 32, between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So he's given different uh, job lists here. He started the whole thing off in verse 1 with the chief priest, right? Chief priest wasn't just hiding or reading his copy of the Old Testament, you know, in some priestly corner being too good to work, but he was a part of the work as well, right? We started with the priests. We have goldsmiths. We have perfumers. We have merchants. We have temple servants. We have Rulers and leaders and government. We have all these kinds of different people all jumping into the work together. So there's, there's no skill that's too skilled to join in the teamwork. And there's no skill that's not skilled enough to join in the teamwork. Ev- everybody's involved. We have all kinds of different skills involved here, which I think, again, is this beautiful picture of teamwork. Um, wh- one question is, why do we take note of perfumers and goldsmiths being involved? First thing I think of is I don't I I don't mean this to be offensive, but I would assume that a perfumer and a goldsmith had like soft hands. You know, like these aren't exactly the strongest guys around. I would guess. Again, I don't know. I don't fully understand the ancient technology here, um, but I'm just guessing they're not like the big rugged guys thrown around timber and the big stones and the guys you'd normally suspect would be building a wall like this. So in my picture, we have a picture here. Of People that aren't normally getting their hands dirty in this way going ahead and joining in and getting their hands dirty in this way. It's a beautiful picture of, of people that might have thought they were too good to stoop to this work, stooping to this work, right? So we had these nobles of Tokoa that wouldn't stoop, but the goldsmiths and the perfumers did. And the, the governor of half the district of Jerusalem and this other governor of this province and you know the merchants and we've got the temple servants and we've got the high priest. We've got all these other people that might think they're too good and their skills shouldn't be wasted on this manual labor, but they're joining in. I think that's a beautiful picture of servant leadership. That's the example that Jesus gave us, right? Jesus said, um, if you wanna be first, you should be last. If you're gonna be last, make yourself first. That's a good way to be last, right? He says, Serve others. Remember in John chapter 13, we have this picture of Jesus knowing who he is, knowing where he came from, knowing where he's going, and because of that, he washed his disciples' feet. He stooped to serve. So that's the example we get of Jesus. Jesus doesn't go, No, 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 you don't understand. I'm the king of the universe. I'm entirely too skilled to be involved in this kind of messy dying for people work. No, he gave himself for us. And that's the example that we should follow as well. So I think it's a great picture. The other question that some commentators brought up that I honestly hadn't thought about, that's why it's helpful to read other, other books when you're studying weird passages like this, they were like, where are the bakers and the butchers, right? Have you thought about that? Um, maybe you're like me. No, I didn't think about it. Well, I didn't think about it either. Um, but they said they're probably baking and butchering, right? I mean, they're probably still doing their normal job to feed the people that are working on the wall. Um, so, so probably some of these guys, like a goldsmith and a perfumer, you would just kind of surmise that, that might be a more luxurious job where they got to um, control their schedule a little more. Some of us don't get to control our schedule. Others do. We've seen that throughout the history of our church. There's some people that just have more say over their schedule, and they can be more involved in ministry stuff because they get to decide when they come and when they go. And the goldsmiths and the perfumers were probably more in that category. So that's just, that's kind of one of the things we're understanding. But again, nobody thought their skills were above the work, and nobody thought their skills were below the work. It, this is true teamwork. Everybody is involved. One of the that's used to a, this, well, this is one of the ways it looks in our society today. I have a picture here of the groundbreaking. Have you all ever seen this? Have you ever been to a public groundbreaking? Raise your hand if you've been to one of these events. Okay, you've been to it or maybe seen it in a newspaper. Raise your hand if you've seen this in a newspaper. So this is a symbolic event we do now um, that, again, I, I imagine if, like, If we had pictures or newspapers a 1,000 years from now, people wouldn't really understand what's going on here. It's like, why are the people in the fancy suits and fancy dresses um, putting a golden shovel into fake dirt, right? Like, what does that mean? And it's a symbolic event where leaders are saying, we're a part of the work. The the funny thing is, it's all symbolic, right? I mean, if you've worked for these organizations, it's purely symbolic. They go back into their air-conditioned office, and they don't do any of the work after that. But here in Nehemiah 3, they're really doing it. I mean, the leaders are really part of the work. It's not just a golden shovel. They're, they're continuing the work. Um, and so, again, I, th- I think it's a beautiful picture of teamwork. I think it's a beautiful picture of what God calls us to do, what, whatever our skills are. My, I had a grandmother that used to say, there's dignity in anything that's necessary. There's dignity in anything that's necessary. So, like, one of the ways this works itself out in my life is I hate blood and guts, right? Can't stand it, grosses me out. Someone shows me a cut, I'm like, you know, and I shake. Um, But there's been many times throughout my children's lives when, you know, they almost cut a finger off or what, you know, there's something that was going wrong and I was able to respond in the moment because I needed to, you know? And I think that's the same thing God asks us. Uh, You know, he's not asking you to pretend you don't have the skills you do or to become someone you're not. He's just asking you to pitch in when you need to pitch in. Right? Like if there's work to be done, pitch in and help out. And that's what's happening here. God calls all of the people to pitch in. Not forever. They're, they're not going to be wall builders for the rest of their life. This is this fantastic project where God's people all pitch in to make this thing happen, despite what their skills are, despite what they're training, despite how soft or non-calloused their fingers are. God's calling them here to pitch in. So there's dignity in anything that's necessary. Um, another thing that I was thinking of as we looked at old pictures of people uh, that have been involved in ministry here is some of the best leaders I've found over the years at Grace Bible Church are uh, strong male leaders that are willing to crawl around on their hands and knees and serve in our nursery. Right? Um, it's just a beautiful picture to me of that servant leadership. That's one of the ways where I, I recognize great leaders. I just say, okay, that person's willing to get their hands dirty. They're, they're willing to crawl. They're, they're willing to stoop. They're willing to do uh, humble things. And I'll just remind you, you know, it's, not, it's not automatic. It's not like that's a prerequisite for leadership here at this church, but um, humility is. Humility is. Nursery, not necessarily. We, we might want to make nursery lease here. Our nursery directors here. We might want to make that a prerequisite for anything in our church, but, um, but humility is definitely a prerequisite. That's just standard Christianity. Um, if, if, if you're going to lead anybody, you've got to have humility and be willing to serve. And that's what Jesus modeled for us. And finally, I just want to wrap up with the way that, um, that Peter divides up skills. There's all these different passages in the New Testament that talks about how we are one body with many parts. right? You, you see that in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and other places in Scripture where we're one body all trying to do one work together even though we have different skill sets. And in First Peter, Peter really simplifies it. He just breaks it down into two categories. He says there's basically speaking gifts and serving gifts. So he just like, just chops it in two, right? Just kind of two categories. And what he says is if you're a speaker, if you have speaking gifts, you should speak as if you're speaking the very words of God. And that's really helpful because what can happen is if you're gifted, you start to think that you have something to say, right? Like that's the danger that you should pray for me and for my heart, that I wouldn't begin to think that I have something really valuable to say, but I would always be mindful of what God has to say. So he says, if you're a speaker, speak as if you're speaking the words of God. And he says, if you serve, same thing, there's a danger there in those gifts. If you serve, serve with the strength that God provides. Again, if you're, if you're good at serving, if you're good at doing things, getting things done, there's a the temptation to think that it's you. And he says, no, it's not your strength, it's the strength that God provides. So that's a great, I think a great uh, teaching for us from Peter on how to contribute our skills to the teamwork that God calls us to in this world. And then the last thing that we see is there are so many locations. So if we're going through the text, we've got a bunch of names, right? Crazy names that are hard to pronounce. We've got a bunch of um, different skills, different jobs that he's listing in the repairs that are happening. And then now we also see a bunch of different locations. There's different locations where the repairs are happening. So let's read through this uh, verse. Let's read verse 10 through 12, and then I'll skip down and read some others. 10 through 12, we've got next to them, Jediah the son of Harumath repaired opposite his house. Okay, so where did he repair? Opposite his house. Very good, all right. I didn't hear what you said. You just mumbled. That's all right. I know, I usually don't ask you to talk back. And next to him, Hatush the son of Hashabniah repaired. So another guy right there. Next to him, Malchiah the son of Harim and Hashub the son of Pahath Moab repaired another section and the tower of the ovens tower of the ovens. That sounds fascinating. Maybe one of you can look that up for me. Okay, verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. We've got daughters involved now. That's kind of cool as well. Okay, let's skip down and look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. So we have another person repairing opposite their house, right? That means like across the street from their house or right in front of their house, and after them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. So another one. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah over to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai repaired opposite the buttress in the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. And him, Padiah the son of Parash, or after him, Padiah the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tokoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. So now all of the priests. He's listed a bunch of individuals repairing opposite their own house. Now he says every single priest repaired opposite his own house. So we have we have a local investment here, right? We have... Uh, locations that are local to the people involved. If you're going to build a wall to kind of keep the zombies out, right, uh, do you think you'd build the wall more securely if it was right in front of your house than if it was like 100 miles away? I mean, I'm just guessing if you're worried about the zombies coming, you're going to build the wall really well in front of your house. And so it makes sense here. This is ingenious, right? Nehemiah is a leader here. He's having them build opposite their house, building right where they're really going to care about. And I think God calls us to that kind of thing as well. He calls us to repair what's ruined in the world, starting with our own locale, our own location, uh, what's close to us. But that's always been a part of how God's people have operated. It's just kind of a standard procedure, caring about our own neighborhood where God's placed us. God's put you all in individual places, individual locations, real locations. He wants you to care for where he's placed you. I have a picture here of a neighborhood backyard barbecue, okay? So this is kind of loving your neighborhood here. Here's a picture. Isn't that just kind of like almost too beautiful and pretty and perfect? I'm using it on purpose because it's stock photography with models, right? Because this is what we think it looks like in our fantasy world to care about our neighborhood is Well, if I was a model and all my neighbors were models and we were kind of this perfect multi-ethnic mix with a gourmet meal and beautiful flowers behind us, then we could really love our neighborhood, right? That would be loving our neighborhood. And I would say, be careful of the fantasy of what it looks like to love your location and be more concerned about actually loving your real location, right? Actually love the actual real place God has put you. Don't fantasize about how perfect and great and beautiful it might look. Now, now, again, I said this earlier. God wants us to make the world a better place, right? Like, so we can kind of move inch by inch into you know, going from the burned hamburgers to the gourmet meal. I mean, you could slowly move that way, and I would recommend that. We, we want to make our neighborhoods and our cities a beautiful place. But don't spend all your time thinking about how beautiful it could be so much so that you don't love where you are. Does, does that make sense? Uh, here's another way of saying it. I've just run across this thing in Clean, Texas, where every once in a while there are some people that get moved here that didn't want to be here. Have you ever met somebody like that? Any of you? Some of, some of you have met someone like that. I know you're not that way, but some of you know people. You know people that know people like that. And I would just challenge you that God calls you to love your city, God calls you to love your neighborhood. He doesn't call you to have warm, fuzzy feelings. Remember, the Christian definition of love is it's a thing you do. It's not a feeling you have. Feelings are great. I love, I love feelings, right? I love to feel the good feelings, but God calls us to love, and love is hard work, and it's a choice that we make, and it's something we do because we believe God loves us first. So we love because he loved us first. That's what Christians do. So we love the people around us. We love our city because God's called us to do that. So I challenge you to make the most of your time. Some of you aren't going to be here long. So don't spend your time worrying that it doesn't look like stock photography here, but love the city that God's called you to. That's what God has called us to do. Love your city. The the other thing is just love your family, right? Like even smaller than city, let's just think family. It's easy to gripe about the family God's placed you in. It's easy to have a hard time about that, have heartburn about that, because let's face it, all of our families are crazy, right? Right? I mean, we're all crazy members of crazy families. And so God calls us to, to love the where we are, the where he's placed us. And God calls us to make a difference in, in that place. Christian leadership starts at home as well. I mean, in the New Testament, it's very clear. You don't make someone a leader in the church unless they can be faithful in their home first. So start there. I mean, please, please don't ever use church work, building God's kingdom as an excuse to not love your family. That's a horrible excuse. Love your family first. And as you learn to love your family, then God's going to train you up to be able to love other people and kind of move outside of that. Um, the other thing is I would say more broadly than just family, circle of influence. I mean, there's people you work with. There's people that God's just put in your circle of influence, Pe- people that respect you or are interested in the things you're interested in or have the same hobbies as you or are in the same area as you. Impact those people. And then finally, love, love the nations. I mean, we, we said this before. Jerusalem, the city of God, was the broadcast center. And it was very local where God was doing his thing through Israel. And we see how in the New Testament, that's much more um, diffused now through the, the worldwide church, through God scattering people all over the world. But, but there's a continuity there where God's always cared about the nations, right? In the Old Testament, he cared about the nations. You read the book of Psalms, it's all about a big giant worship service in Jerusalem where they're inviting the nations in. They're saying, come worship God, come worship God. You'll only find satisfaction if you're worshiping the true God of the Bible. And so there's always been a concern for all the nations. They've always been invited in. And so we want to have that same concern as well. As I said earlier, we, we push 10% just financially out to that, but we want to have hearts that are pushing out towards the nations as well. We want to care for, for those outside of our sphere of influence. So, so many names, so many skills, so many locations. Um, all of these things remind me of the teamwork that God is doing in, in the church, right? There's continuity between what he's doing in the Old Testament and what he's doing now. Uh, and in 1 Peter 2, Peter says that just like Jesus is this living stone, this cornerstone that he builds the church on, we as participants are living stones as well. And that God is taking our life and we we try to, you know, wiggle and jump off the wall, but he's taking us and he's setting us into the walls. He's building his spiritual house where he's going to offer spiritual sacrifices for the world, where we get to function as, as a kingdom of, of priests, interceding, bringing God to others in this world. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the world. Again, because it pleases him to use us in the process, in the the teamwork, it, it glorifies him to bring together a diverse group of people like you and me, real people in real places to do his work to repair the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and that you invite us into your work. Thank you that uh, you not only have forgiven us of our sins, but you've invited us into the family business. And I pray that you would show us new ways. You'd give us eyes to see what you have for us. Just, just right in front of us. Lord, some, uh, some of us here may be just repenting over our involvement with our own family. God, you may want us to take a more serious look at how we're loving our very own family. Maybe it's our neighborhood. Maybe it's our city and our attitude toward it. Maybe it's our workplace. God, we pray that you would set us free to know that we're loved by you so we can make the choice to be involved in your work to love the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.